0: Now you're seeing this black screen in front of you because we're about to do some diagram work. But first, what I wanna do is call your attention to another passage in the opening session of seminar 16. We're going slow and steady through this thing, as you can tell. And at this point, if my calculations are correct, we're about on page eight. Now check this out. This first full paragraph gives us a clue to how Lacan is going to develop this notion of surplus enjoyment. The first full paragraph that begins on page eight with I will develop this. Let's read it. I will develop this in the time to come by a return to this wager of Pascal that illustrates so well the relation of the renunciation of enjoyment to this element of wager in which life in its totality is itself reduced to an element of value. A strange way of inaugurating the market of enjoyment, to inaugurate it, I am clearly saying, in the field of discourse. So here we have this turn to Pascal's wager. It's not the first time Lacan has mentioned it. It won't be the last. This wager is worth noting here, not just because of what it suggests for A market of enjoyment, but just on its own terms. Pascal's wager is that it's better to believe in God and be wrong than to not believe in God and be wrong. Now think about this at the level of enjoyment and its renunciation, which is how Lacan is inviting us. If you believe that God exists, and you act according to all of the commandments and prohibitions of religiosity and so forth, (laughs) Um, and you're wrong, Lacan's point is you haven't lost much. If you're right, though, the gains are quite substantial. If God exists and you've lived according to the dictates, (laughs) my gosh, what a reward. This is a better option whether God exists or not, than to just assume that God doesn't exist, do whatever the fuck you want now, and run the risk at the end of your life of realizing that God does exist, and now condemn yourself to hell. It's better to believe in God and be wrong than to not believe in God and be wrong. Because if you're wrong and you live a bullshit life, at the end of it, you're going to hell. That's a much more substantial pain than that of living a life according to God's dictates, only to find out at the end that God doesn't exist. This is part of what makes up Pascal's wager, and it's what Lacan is working with here at the level of the renunciation of enjoyment. The suggestion seems to be that it's better to renounce enjoyment in this life than otherwise. But after all, he continues, is this not a simple transition from what we have just now seen being inscribed in the history in this function of goods devoted to the dead? Don't forget about that mustard pot. Moreover, do we not have here what is now in question for us? And now we come to the important part of this passage for us. We have to deal with theory in as far as it has been lightened precisely by the introduction of Of this function of the surplus enjoyment or surplus enjoying as the translation has it here around surplus enjoyment here's the key part there is played out the production of an essential object whose function is now a matter of defining it Uh, whose, whose function is now a matter of defining it is objaya Here, the O object, but what he's talking about here is object little a. Let's see what we can make of this object little a. Now, backing up to the experience of discourse, of being integrated into a language. As you've heard me say many times in this forum, there's an element of loss and lack that comes with this. And loss and lack are not the same thing. And this is one of the confusions that we see oftentimes in Lacanian theory. Loss and lack are different. They are separate moments in what amounts to a a set-like experience that has multiple moments in it. Let's start with this loss and the resulting experience of lack that conditions all language use. And I would add, by extension, all normative forms and functions of human subjectivity. So, as you've heard me discuss before, we can start with a very simple imaginary triangle. Here are the basic elements here. This might sound a little developmental. It might sound a little too staged, if you will. But I think it's useful for our purposes always to start with the basics and scale it back up. So even if you've heard this once before, hell, maybe three times before from me, pay attention because we're about to do something different with this. First and foremost down here, you've got a child, an infant, a baby, a toddler, a kiddo who is desperately tuned in to the maternal figure here i put maternal fx maternal function always again to illustrate that what we're really talking about here is the primary caregiver doesn't have to be a mommy doesn't have to be a daddy doesn't have to be anything even in between those two elements the maternal figure is the primary caregiver it's a subject position that anyone can occupy But it's a necessary subject position because the child is born into a body that requires copious amounts of care it has to have that care from another if it's going to survive so what we have here is an orientation of the child towards the maternal figure and what i would suggest here is that this is a desire for this individual I use the word desire here loosely, not technically, to get at something that we're going to understand about desire from this model. Now, in this dynamic though, it doesn't take long for the child to realize that it is not the only interest in the maternal figure's life. Whatever else the child imagines the maternal figure to be interested in, we mark it here with a lowercase v. And what this lowercase v is, is an imaginary object. Imaginary object because it's what the child imagines the maternal figure to also be interested in. In other words, that the child sees the maternal figure turn towards other entities in the world, the car keys, that they look for in order to leave, the phone that they smile at when there's nothing, as the child can see, that's laughable about the situation. <laughs> it's whatever the child imagines the maternal figure to be also interested in. In other words, what the child is doing here is it is approximating the desire of the maternal figure. imagining what else the maternal figure desires in addition to them. And this imaginative work here, it causes the child initially to, you know, have some tension with this item, which is one of the reasons why kids love to grab your phone, love to grab your car keys and the like. But it also creates an identification, an early identification with this proto-symbol, this proto-signifier of the primary caregiver's desire. I say proto because we are again here in the field of the imaginary. This is not some sort of a symbolic enterprise, but this is in many ways, the first symbol in the child's life. It's an imagined symbol of what the maternal figure might also like. And what the child learns to do is to identify with this other object of maternal interest. In other words, they learn to desire the phone and the car keys like they imagine the maternal figure to do so. And this is desiring as someone else. The whole wager here is that by desiring, by figuring out what the maternal figure also is interested in and learning to identify with that thing, the child can get its desire for that maternal figure met. By associating itself with the phone, with the car keys, it will get attention from the maternal figure. And this is not just, again, about child development, as you've heard me say. This is also indicative of of early adolescent experience, uh, just simply trying to attract another's attention. Someone who you have a crush on, you realize they're into heavy metal. And so you go out on eBay and you find an original Iron Maiden concert t-shirt and you wear it to school the next day, hoping that their interest in heavy metal, now associated with you, will translate into their interest for you. We can go on and on about this. We don't need to here. What we want to get at is the next step. The next step is what in Lacanian systems we refer to as castration by a fourth figure when this imaginary triangle gets transformed into a symbolic square. Here what you're seeing is a fourth element introduced, another function here not maternal but paternal. Now this doesn't mean that this is where daddy goes. This is not where your bio dad goes. Hell, this doesn't even have to be a person. This could be Colonel Sanders. This could be some sort of imagined greater than thou entity. The point here is that this fourth element is one that cuts in to this imaginary triangulation between the child, the mother, and the phallus. Now, you've heard me say it before, so I'm going to move quickly through this. This... Element works by cutting in. It cuts in and produces a gap between the child and the maternal figure. And it renders this imaginary object as gone. It marks a subtraction of this imaginary object from the equation. This is what I mean by loss. It is not the same as lack. This incision by the paternal figure is one that results in a loss. Now, what's left after this loss has occurred, after this incision has been made? Well, think about any incision. There's a cut that is made on the body that leaves an opening a wound. This opening is an experience of lack. Something that was there is no longer there. It is lacking. This opening or this resulting space where the imaginary object used to be, we symbolize not just as a whole but as that whole represented by little a. Little a is a symbol of the lack that emerges in the wake of the loss known as castration. And all of this is just part of growing up. In fact, if you look developmentally as how, at how it usually goes for kiddos, With their primary caregivers, you see a series of losses resulting in experiences of lack. If there's an oral stage, it would be one in which the breast is a lost object. From nursing to weaning, the breast becomes something that is subtracted from the experiential lived life of the infant. Anality. Feces becomes a lost object. Something that by the demand of the paternal, maternal, big other, whichever figure you want here, something that would be um, forced to be produced, lost, thrown away, flushed, so forth. Um, The phallic stage. Here, what's prohibited is the cry. And by phallic stage, if you want to play the stage game again, Um, I just mean the child's induction into language. Part of what happens when the primary or secondary or tertiary and and so forth caregiver says, um, time to start using your words, um, is to say that crying is no longer allowed. Now, all of this results in a production and a multiplication of desire. And we're going to come to this and we're going to talk about this a lot in the in the next uh few minutes. But for now, I just want to get it on the table with this very um well-trod diagram that you see in front of you. The lacks that come and result from the loss of a breast, the loss of feces, the loss of the cry. And we can keep going and going. I'm being fast and loose here because we're on our way somewhere else. These are all causes of desire. Desire that will then be part and parcel of the child's subjectivation. Their integration into society with all of its roles, rules, and regs. All desire is caused by the experience of lack. And it's always goaded by stuff. Stuff that we hope will plug the holes left behind by all the objects that have been subtracted from us, and as a result, that will help us feel complete. Now if you are paying attention here, we've got some terms that we are looking at. The first term is the imaginary object, this phallus of sorts. The next term that we have here is the symbol of its loss. And then the third term is the resulting lack that comes from this. We can now introduce a fourth. This fourth term is a term that I'm using here to represent all of the stuff that our desire pursues in hopes of filling the voids, the lacks, that have been left behind by the experience of loss known as castration. And this fourth term you might think it ambiguous for me to use this symbol because it also suggests a specular image, is what I'm going to be using here to designate not the cause of desire, but its objective, where it heads, not why we desire. Why we desire is because we experience lack. What we desire, though, that's this entity, not why, but what. Not the cause of our desire, but its orientation, the direction in which it's headed. Now, what I want to suggest is that in this moment, what we see is a repetition of having. this entity, this imaginary object that was caught up in an imaginary logic of having early on, is reduplicated at the level of commodity consumption, at the level of purchasing power, at the level of acquisition, primitive and otherwise. What we have here is a second level of having, a repetition of sorts. So what I want to suggest is that the cause of desire is here, in this transition from loss to lack. But on either side of this set, we have two elements. That are closely connected, and the nature of their connection is by way of repetition. What you see here at the level of loss and lack is a renunciation of enjoyment. What you see here at the level of pursuing objects in hopes of fulfilling desire is what we can call surplus enjoyment. Here is the return of enjoyment. Surplus enjoyment is occurring after the renunciation of enjoyment, the same renunciation that would integrate us into the field of discourse, into the field of the big other. And this is not coincidental. In fact, if we wanted to keep adding to this, we certainly could. I'll throw a different color up for purposes of clarity here. If we have having one and having two on either end, clearly, I'm going to want to put being in this realm. One of the basic dialectics of Lacanian psychoanalysis is not that between being and appearing, as you would often see in the philosophical tradition, but between being and having. The structure of human being occurs here, at the level of a renunciation of enjoyment that is structured atop experiences of loss and lack, here symbolized by the minus V and A. I've been over this before, Consult our previous series if you're curious. That's why I'm not spending too much time messing with this stuff here. What we are after is this relationship between having one and having two. Here, at the level of the imaginary phallus, we're dealing with imaginary objects. Here, at the level of having two, what we're looking at is stuff, consumer goods you might say. The phallus, the imaginary phallus that we saw at the start of this triangulation of the maternal figure and the child, was part and parcel of a kind of fantasy where the child hopes to secure additional care and attention from the maternal figure by identifying with what they imagine the maternal figure to also be interested in. Um, it's a kind of proto-enjoyment that's happening here. I hesitate to even use the term. Even Lacan slips up with this on occasion and identifies some sort of enjoyment here at the level of the pre-linguistic um, imaginary uh, stage, this pre-edipal state. And I think that's, that's a mistake. The most we can say is that this is a kind of proto-enjoyment something before we even had enjoyment to think of. Um, It's a kind of uteromorphic fantasy of completion where the child can kind of close this circuit between themselves their primary caregiver and the primary caregivers other interests by way of identification. It's an imaginary identification, but it is uteromorphic in the sense that it tries to recreate a perceived as lost experience of wholeness. Um, notice how I put that, though. I'm not saying that we were whole once and now it's being re-secured. I'm saying that it's perceived as something we've had. And that's precisely what marks it as fantasy here because that shit ain't true. At the level of having two, we have consumer goods that are now taking the place of what were previously imaginary objects, but they're not too far behind. Here the imaginary object marks a fantasy of Edenic, proto-enjoyment. Out here, in the field of desire, in the wake of the experience of loss and lack, we see more something more akin to the realities of late capitalist surplus enjoyment. Again, though, the promise is uteromorphic. The fantasy here is that if I just get the new car, If I just get the new house, if I just get this, that, or the other, I will be whole again. So there's an important connection here, but it's not the only thing we want to look at. The connection here marked by this retroactive arrow that we so often see is precisely when we start getting to the notion of return and repetition that is so crucial to what Lacan is doing with surplus enjoyment. So basically what we have here is the start of an extension to some original diagram work that we've done around loss and lack. We have a reduplication of logics of having pre-linguistic and at the heart of sociolinguistic experience itself. Proto-enjoyment at the level of the imaginary object and surplus enjoyment at the level of the commodity. This is where we're going to turn to now. A black screen here. What I've done is I've taken the four terms that we just introduced and I've re-plotted them here in a way that are going to allow us to do some different diagram work. Now, while you're looking at this, let me back up a second, zoom out and say a little bit more about this being having dialectic that you heard me say is at the heart of Lacan's work. It's not being and appearing, it's being and having. And I want to suggest that there are some ways to understand this that are pretty workable. Having is about objects. Being is about openings. The bumper sticker for having is having lost something. It's about the thing that is presupposed to have been there and is now lost some sort of an object. The idea of a lost object puts us in the field of having. In other words, in the field of having lost something. It's about stuff. It's about objects. Being, though, is different. When Lacan talks about being, it's about being at a loss. And so maybe you could split this between the difference between lost as something that is lost and loss as an experience of being at a loss. So there you have it, there's the bumper stickers. Having has to do with having lost something and being what Lacan means by being here, it's better captured at the level of being at a loss. Now what you see here with this blue line is the line between being and having what i would suggest is that on this side you have having and on this one you have being having is about stuff imaginary objects consumer goods, and the like. Being has to do with the experience of loss and lack. So, if having is about the thing that is presupposed to have been lost, an object, if you will, being is about the lived symbolic experience of loss, the experience of an opening, of having a gap, a furrow somewhere in one's life and what this comes down to is also an understanding of wholeness in the field of having with all of its imaginary objects and commodities what we have is wholeness as presupposed reality The idea here is that wholeness was something we once had, and we were all complete, and Eden was a lovely place, and now it's gone, and that's a lost reality. In the field of having, wholeness is always thought of as the very basic object that we've lost, a reality that is lost. On the side of being, however, wholeness is realized for what it actually is. Namely, a fundamental fantasy. A fundamental fantasy sustained by beings that can't help but exist in the field of lack, having suffered loss. So wholeness on the side of having is presupposed as a reality that's been lost. And wholeness on the side of being is taken to be part and parcel of a fundamental fantasy, which you've heard me say enough about in the preliminary remarks to 16, and of course, throughout our series on 14. So I'll pause there. But I introduced this blue arrow here, this blue line to suggest that each set of terms is on either side of it. Now let's take this step by step and see if we can rebuild at this level what we had in the previous diagram, a diagram that's pretty familiar to those of you who have taken series with me before, um, particularly on the drive where we started working up um, these little imaginary uh, objects at the level of consumer goods. What we see in this transition from the imaginary object known as the phallus to its loss as minus phi here is an experience that I would call prohibition. Prohibition, castration, the no of the father that gets this process started, this process that is eventually going to result in loss. <laughs> um, the word i'm going to use here is prohibition and it's worth noting here as we start getting going because we have a term for each of these moments this moment out here i'm not going to call prohibition i'm going to call it subjectivation because it's in the transition from loss to lack the experience of something being subtracted and the resulting hole or opening that's left here's the incision and here's the wound this is an active process of removal and this is what's left as a result of that removal a noticeable absence an experience of lack And that's the important part here too, as you've heard me say before. Lack is an experience. There are many things that you lack, but that you don't experience as missing. Lack is an active experience of, I don't have that, and I feel like I want it, or so on and so forth. This experience from loss to lack is what subjectivizes us. It's what produces the subject i'm not going to spend too much time on that because again we're moving fast in search of something new and i think we're on the verge of it what i would suggest is that the transition from the experience of lack to that of surplus also has a name and the name for this is sublimation Now, if you have heard our series on the drive, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. This is from seminar seven in many ways, where Lacan talks about ordinary objects and stuff being elevated to the dignity of the thing. Now the thing pops in seven and we don't really hear much about it after that. It's partly because little a comes to take its place in Lacan's thinking. So what you see here is these little imaginary commodities, little I there, um, are somehow taken as sublimations elevated to the dignity and the profound experience of lack that conditions them. These are commodities elevated to the dignity of the thing. And I would just also add, as you heard me say in our series on the drive, that this is also the mark of the thing being disgraced. Sublimation doesn't just elevate ordinary stuff to the dignity of the thing. It also marks a disgrace of the thing, a thing that has been lowered to the level of commodities. Now, we're going to come to each of these terms and develop them more. Right now, I just want to get this all out on the table for us. Not surprisingly, The return, the repetition that we were working with in our previous graph is also captured here. This is our field of repetition. And this is going to be a departure from some of the stuff you've read before. So if you read, for instance, Miller's stuff on the relationship between loss and lack, he's going to land repetition somewhere in here. It's not totally wrong, but I just think there's something a little righter about saying that repetition occurs out here. Especially when we're talking about surplus jouissance, surplus enjoyment. So we have four terms. The imaginary object of the phallus, the sign of its loss, the experience of lack, And the stuff that we enjoy in the wake of that experience, which in turn harkens back to something there before we think. Now, if this is loss, this is lack, and this is surplus, what's the word that we want to use to designate this entity, this imaginary object so often referred to with lowercase v as the imaginary phallus or simply the phallus? The word I'm going to use here is supply. You have a supply, a loss, a lack, and a surplus. And the surplus somehow indexes and marks a return to a repetition of supply. Now, let's slow down here for a second and do some work. Supply. Is from the Latin supplere. It means to fill up, to make full, to complete. And it originates from sub. It's like a twist on sub. The sub is a sub originally. Sub means up from below. And then there's that crucial verbage added, plere, meaning to fill. Now later, supply is going to mean things like to furnish, to provide, to help, to support, to maintain. All of this, though, can be traced back to a Proto-Indo-European root, pele, meaning to fill. And that's really crucial here. Supply, surplus, and a dozen other words that you know, trace their origin to the Proto-Indo-European root pele, meaning to fill. By the the 1580s, like 1600s, I'd say, (laughs) Supply has also become, and get this, a person who takes the place of someone else temporarily. Now, I don't know that we're going to go that far with it. We're looking more at older origins of this word supply. And for our purposes, it's that Proto-Indo-European root to fill. But you might think of this person in the 16th century who starts being the supply as something that takes the place of another as one who fills their shoes, if you will. Supply is closely related to surplus. Now, they don't look too similar on surface, but think about this. Surplus comes from a combination of two Latin terms, super meaning over and plus meaning more. And you can see the plus also, of course, in Lacan's French. Both in turn, not surprisingly, originate in the same Proto-Indo-European root, Pele, meaning to fill. And if you start there with P-E-L-E, the Proto-Indo-European root of supply and surplus, you get all kinds of abundance words that pop from there. Check it out. Plenitude. Plethora. Plural. Poly-anything. Polysemus polyamorous, anything that goes after poly, that poly also originates in the Proto-Indo-European root to fill. Also terms like replenish, replete, even hoi polloi if you know that one. And get this, the Latin version, plebeian, plebes, plebeian also originates in the Proto-Indo-European root pele. And that's the connection between supply and surplus. They both have some sense of filling, of filling in, and that's what's happening here. Let's see if we can be even more precise. You know me, and you know I love bad math. That's the true sign of a Lacanian, is that they enjoy bad math, or fuzzy math, if you will. Lacan's not alone, either. Check out that section in The Chattering Mind where I talk about fuzzy math and Kierkegaard. It's right there in the start. Here's some ways that we can understand this. Loss and surplus. These are connected, but notice how. Loss here can be designated simply by a minus sign. There you see it right there. It means having less. Something is subtracted. There's your minus sign. Surplus is, of course, about something more. This plus would also be in a, like an early Latin symbol for etc. for the and so on that you so often hear in post-Lacanian thought. It's kind of like this zigzag this phrase, and so on, and so on, and so on. There's your plus right there. It means having more. So if our minus sign equals having less on the way to lack, this plus sign symbolizes having more on its way to a full supply. Now what can we do on either side with these elements? Pretty readily, what I would suggest is that what we have here, and you can see this in Lacan too, is that this is a number one. The phallus is oftentimes taken and worked through in Lacan with this vertical number one. And lack, no coincidence here, you don't need me to tell you this. Throughout Lacan's work in the 60s, lack gets symbolized by 0. So on the side of being, you have the minus sign that results in a 0. On the side of having, you have a plus that points us towards the 1. And what I would just do, for purposes of thought, is allow some crosshairs here. Allow for the dialectics to also pop between loss and surplus, supply and lack. Now, once you start messing with this diagram, you get all sorts of insights. You can, for instance, if you're very keen on the drive, you can review our series and note how the drive marks a reversal of this circuit. The drive would start in the field of surplus and work not by sublimation, but by desublimation, such that the cause of desire lack would become the object of the drive, the objective even. And you can run this process back. And you get some pretty great theorizations of enjoyment that way. Theories of enjoyment that are not those of surplus enjoyment. We'll come to that in a moment. What I would first note, though, is what's happening down here in the level of surplus, because this is what Lacan is after in seminar 16. So what can we say about the objects that afford surplus enjoyment? Building on what we've got so far, these are normative objects. They're commodities. They're consumer goods. And bear in mind that later in 16 and so forth, this is not where Lacan is realizing this if you read seminar 7 closely and you look at what he's doing with sublimation he's taking massive shits on cultural artifacts commodities objects stuff that would be elevated to the dignity of the thing it's not a good series of stuffs that are put in front of us these commodities and consumer goods are shit. And Lacan is aware of this as early as 7, so don't just think he's starting from scratch here in 16. I would also add that the surplus happening down here, these are supplements for the experience of lack. Supplement is another word that could work down here with surplus. Not surprisingly, you're going to find that it's also closely related to supply and to surplus. The objects, that afford surplus enjoyment are supplements for the experience of lack. These objects of surplus enjoyment are all of the objects that desire pursues until its heart's content. They're all answers to the question of what around desire, what do I want? These are objects of surplus enjoyment. And what I would suggest, building on some great stuff that Miller has said, is that these objects of surplus enjoyment, they are representations of jouissance. The emphasis here is on representation. They are representations in fits and starts, bits and pieces, what Miller calls crumbs of jouissance. Now, you heard me earlier talk about the drive as being a retro move that de-sublimates from these representations of jouissance. And the question is, what does that result in? If we were to draw an arrow for the drive here, it would extend going this way, back through, and ultimately arrive at the field of castration, which is why, if you look at the drive in the graph of desire, it is not on the side of jouissance. In the graph of desire, the drive appears on the side of castration because it marches its way back from the experience of desire and surplus enjoyment back to something else, back into the field of castration where the cause of desire becomes its object, namely lack. Now for our purposes now, the question is if surplus enjoyment and all of the stuff in which it traffics marks a representation of jouissance in bits and pieces, what do we get at the level of the drive. What I would suggest is that surplus enjoyment is about representations of jouissance, but the drive is about realizations of jouissance. The drive does not represent jouissance, it realizes jouissance. Surplus enjoyment, not unlike the imaginary object that it links up to, that it reduplicates, is all about what other people are interested in. It's other-oriented. Surplus enjoyment is other-oriented. The same way that the child's imagination of what the maternal figure wanted is a kind of other-orientation, which is why I used that desire for, desire of, desire as logic. To show again and again that this is part and parcel of Lacan's claim that the desire of each of us is always the desire of the other. It's always in terms of other people and what we imagine they might want that we in turn learn to desire. And you can think about this to take a classic example in terms of standing in front of a mirror. When you stand in front of a mirror, what you're looking at is yourself as you imagine yourself to be seen from somebody else's perspective and you try and answer the question of does this look good am i desirable from somebody else's perspective there you see us desiring as others not as ourselves but as some other perspective now you can run this into the gaze as much as you want but i think for our purposes what matters is that this is an other oriented way to be. And that's what's up with surplus jouissance. All of the consumer goods and cultural artifacts that we gather up, purchase, and throw on our shelves and so forth, affording surplus jouissance, these are culturally circumscribed and approved goods. It is in terms of the other that we find surplus jouissance. And in fact, it is the terms of the other that afford us surplus jouissance. Drive, in its realization of jouissance, is not other-oriented, but self-centered. And I mean that in the best possible way, because the drive is auto-erotic, and the type of jouissance that it affords is the only type of jouissance that can ever actually be experienced, which is my own, me, by myself, my body alone, what Miller very rightly calls jouissance one. Now he's getting this from seminars 19 and 20, but I think it's right there at the start of seminar 11, where we start seeing the drive moving in autoerotic ways. If the green arrow from loss to lack is one of subjectivation, you might say that that of the drive and its pink reversal here would be one of resubjectivation. It's a new way of being with yourself. It marks the emergence of a new subject, a desublimated, auto-erotic subject, on the pathway of the drive. And what this opens the door for is what can be called drive satisfaction. This is a realization of jouissance at the level of one's body. Auto-erotic. It doesn't mean that it's hedonistic. It doesn't mean that it's anarchic. It doesn't mean that it breaks all the rules of society and it's just you out there doing whatever the fuck you want. That's not how the drive operates. Again, that's why it's out in the field of castration in the graph of desire. You do not see the drive on the side of jouissance. Drive is on the side of castration because it's always within the bounds of society that we pursue drive satisfaction. The drive is kept alive in the field of the symbolic, in the field of discourse. That's an important part of all this, and it's one that's oftentimes lost as soon as we start making the drive a corporal experience, an embodied experience, and an autoerotic one. It is a, in fact, contrary to that, it's a social experience. What it means, though, is that you're simply uninhibited by that order. Yes, you still play by the rules. You still drive on the correct side of the road for your circumstances. But you don't trip about it. You're not all wrapped up in it. Drive in many ways is like letting your freak flag fly. You're doing that. On display before others but you do not give a fuck what they think and this can be confusing because you start getting into performative dynamics exhibitionism and the like and I think a lot of potentially good drive theory takes a misstep in that moment I think Bruce Fink has this right when he describes the drive unlike desire being uninhibited by other people's perspectives, what other people think. It doesn't mean you act as though those opinions don't exist. It just means that you're not tripping about them. I think that's worth having out here on the table as we start working through this. Again, all of the little i, little a's, all of the objects of surplus enjoyment These are representational scraps of jouissance. The pink arrow of the drive gives us an opportunity to move from representation to realization. And I think it's worth noting here. Final word on this diagram for now is I want to emphasize where we started, which is on the question of return, the return of enjoyment, that occurs as an effect of the renunciation of enjoyment. That's where this all started. And what I want to suggest, again, is that the objects of surplus enjoyment are repetitions of the pre-edipal imaginary objects that conditioned the subjectivation of each of us. And what this suggests is that this supply of subjectivation is at some level the origin, the lost origin, of the commodities and the artifacts that prop up surplus surplus enjoyment. They're all figures of what we imagine other people to lack to want, and so forth. But the important part about this repetition, and this is gonna bring us right to the cusp of what Lacan means by repetition. At this point in his work, it's arguably the most important concept he's working on, is a theory of repetition. He's gonna say it's Freudian, it's quite uniquely his own, I would suggest. (laughs) A theory of repetition where the origin, the thing to be repeated, is somehow lost and only marked as the repeated object at a later date, after the fact. It's after you've run this circuit arriving at surplus enjoyment that surplus enjoyment can work back to the start and designate its lost origin. So again, we're right back at the stake with a theory of representation. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.